just sitting here looking at uh, Chris's left arm as he gave me the uh, signal to start on this 375th. You've been working out again. Your arm is even getting bigger. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah, it's been fun. Good. I just I just saw this massive arm sitting here going, and I kind of got lost and lost my train of thought. But uh, Friday, August the 9th, we are uh, broadcasting here on Saturday, August the 10th. So yesterday, Friday, marked the 31st anniversary. And I don't think that was a trade. I think that was a, a sell. That was a whatever you want to call it. But I guess you, the, the 31st anniversary of the transaction that sent Wayne Gretzky from Edmonton to the Los Angeles Kings, August 9th, 1988. Gretzky goes to the Southland, and Jimmy Carson, Martin Jelena, and three number one draft picks go to the uh, Edmonton Oilers. And, you know, it always seems to be, and, and I, uh, certainly Chris is an Edmonton Oilers fan, um, and I... I always have an unbelievable amount of respect for Wayne Gretzky after the way I got to meet him in 2003 at a golf tournament at the golf course that I was working at. And uh, I have the utmost respect for the best hockey player that's ever played the game of hockey. I mean, there are a lot of good ones out there, no question about it. But, uh, you know, Don Cherry, as much as I think the world of Mr. Cherry, he would argue with me till the day is until the day is long that he would always say Bobby Orr was the best hockey player ever. And of course, my uh, response would be number 99, Wayne Gretzky. But again, Friday was the 31st anniversary of the Wayne Gretzky trade to L.A. And uh, I want to take this opportunity, and I asked Chris to do a little homework before we got together on this 375th episode of Unscripted with Mike and Chris, and we welcome you to this uh, edition of our program. But I asked Chris to do a little homework in regard to, you could think of some trades in the wonderful and wacky and from the wonderful and wacky world of sports over the years that still to this day resonate and we still remember some of these trades. I mean, I'm, I'm really excited to see because Chris has, has done his homework as he always does. He's done it very, very well and he's got a list of them and I can't wait to see some of the things that he's going to, that he's going to rattle off here in a minute. But can you imagine today what the cost would be if you were, let's say, sending, oh, I don't know, Mookie Betts of the Boston Red Sox to the New York Yankees. Well, that wouldn't happen today because the Yankees and the Red Sox don't trade with each other. But then I never thought the Calgary Flames and the Edmonton Oilers would ever have a trade together either. And a couple of weeks ago, they sent one of their pieces of crap for one of Calgary's pieces of crap, and we'll see how that happens. And uh, if you haven't been paying attention, that was James Neal going to Edmonton for Milan. Uh, uh, what's his Lucic. name again? Yeah, thanks, Lucic, the guy that Jerome McGinley thinks is going to be a difference maker. Yeah, in uh, Calgary, sure, mm -hmm. sure. But what about in 1916 when the Yankees acquired Babe Ruth from the New from the Boston Red Sox for 125,000? Didn't even <laughs> trade a player. It was a cash deal. 125,000, and I really believe a lot of the 86-year non-winning a World Series championship for the Boston Red Sox have to do with Red Sox owner at the time, Harry Frisee, I think his name was. He was in really a tough financial, uh, really tough financial spot, 
And so he sells his biggest asset, Babe Ruth, to the New York Yankees for $125,000 cash. What year was that? I believe it was 1916, but I could be wrong. But it was a long, long time ago. All I know is that that was the number, and that was what the components were. Babe Ruth for $125,000. But um, I would like to bring in the executive producer of Unscripted and let us... uh, hit him or let him hit us with what I think would be a, he's going to, he's deep. He dives deep into this stuff. He does his research very, very well. And I'm interested to hear some of the trades that he's come up with that we still think about today. And it may have happened years and years and decades and whatever ago, generations ago, but I'm interested to see what Chris has to say, sir. Sure. Well, I'm just doing the calculations there. So it looks like a, a dollar in 1916 is about 22 times as much now. So $125,000 would today be about 2.75 million. So that just shows how even as much inflation as there's been, uh, the business of sports has grown significantly because if you had Babe Ruth in his prime right now or whoever, uh, I don't know if that Babe Ruth translates because I don't know if you'd have a, you know. I get, yeah, that's right. A, Who would? a, a, a Frank and cigar loving <laughs> prostitute user uh, today. I don't know if it really, he'd be on top of the world, but. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But anyway, if you were trading, you know, it, or if you were selling, like the Gretzky sale, selling a top guy today, the, whoever the best player in baseball was, if you're selling Bryce Harper, like how much would you get for him in pure cash from a team? Like, I mean,. Right. More than $3 million you'd get. Oh, for sure. Right? So, for sure. So significantly. So it's interesting to think. But anyway, I saw this one, and this one just made me laugh because if anyone out there, if any of you who are listening right now have read our columns and our blogs that we will get back to doing soon, but yep. especially we're going to be on uh, the new website soon, as soon as it launches. hasn't quite launched yet, but should launch any time now. Oh, really? Yeah. It should, they're hoping for this month. Oh, but good. Anyway, but I checked it this morning, not quite ready yet. But anyway, we've been you know using the Patreon page the last couple of years, and Mike wrote an article about this gentleman, and uh, I'm just going to pretend it's a love letter to this gentleman because, of course, what could be bigger than the New Jersey Nets trading one of Mike's favorite players of all time, Stefan Marbury? <laughs> what what a blockbuster deal that uh, Mike must have been sad. Oh yeah, Starberry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In case you didn't, in case you didn't read Mike's column, uh, what are your thoughts on Stefan Marbury? Um, he had the ego the size of the state of Texas. I don't think there's any question about his physical capabilities with a basketball in his hands. I remember him years ago playing in a McDonald's All-American game, and he was going up against Bobby Hurley, then from some high school in New Jersey. Of course, Bobby Hurley went on to his great success at Duke under Krzyzewski, and now is the head basketball coach at Arizona State. But um, Stefan Marbury... um, I think, if you're being fair, would have to be classified, Chris, as one of the greatest underachievers of all time. I think that uh, he had he had the world by the short hairs. He had an unbelievable ability to do almost anything with a basketball, and I think that he ended up being one of the great underachievers in all of basketball. And here's why I say that, because the greatest success in his career, in my opinion— came at the end of his career when he's playing over in the Chinese Basketball League, over in the CBA, Chinese Basketball Association. And at that point, I don't care if you have 10 Yao Mings in the league, that's still 
the talent level in the CBA will never match up, obviously, to what's going on in the NBA. So I think Stefan Marbury, um, out of high school, uh, rightfully so, was one of the most highly anticipated uh, young men to come out. But I think he also goes down as one of the great classic underachievers in the history of the game of basketball. Absolutely. Uh, of course. And when you think of, other than, of course, the Gretzky sale, which, you know, is, is the, that anniversary, 31 years is what inspired this idea. But uh, that sale, the thing is, not not just giving up Wayne Gretzky, but, I mean, they also gave up Mike Krusielniski and Marty McSorley. Who Correct. Were two yeah. very good players. Correct. You get bad Jimmy Carson, who ended up having the one really good campaign in Edmonton. That was about it. And uh, I always forget the other guy they got. Uh, Martin Jelena, your buddy. Your buddy, Martin Jelena. Yeah. And then three first-round picks. They did every other year. So the trade was in 88. Then you, they got the LA Kings first-rounder in uh, 89, 91, and 93. Right. And then, of course, out of all that, that was, none of that was even what Peter Poffington was after. He wanted the $15 million, wow. which he got in there, too. Which, speaking of other things, that'd be worth a lot more. Wayne Gretzky in his prime today. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that'd be, that'd be some money. But... Anyway, enough of that. Uh, but a similar thing, uh, and also similar to the Doug Gilmore thing when they just wanted to get rid of him, was when Patrick Waugh said he'd never play for the Canadians again after they left him in for that drubbing and he allowed, whatever, nine or ten goals. Yeah. Yeah. And just wasn't his night, and they just embarrassed him. And uh, so, of course, they sent to Colorado Patrick Waugh and the very underrated Mike Keane for Jocelyn Tebow, Martin Chiruchinsky, and Andre Kovalenko. And those guys didn't really do anything. Ruchinski at one point was on the Oilers and uh, Patrick Waugh who already had two cups goes and wins two more cups with the Avalanche so that was just ridiculous that's why you don't screw around and just uh, you know at least if you're going to trade a Patrick Waugh or Wayne Gretzky try to get fair market value that might not even be possible but you can get more than three hockey pucks or $15 million, or get something good. Like, you need a superstar, if not two superstars coming back the other way. So those were just unbelievable. But uh, how about the Houston Astros requiring uh, Randy Johnson? Like, who would have thought Seattle would ever give up Randy Johnson, right? Do you remember? Sure. Remember Randy Johnson? Like, he could have, he should have had a World Series in Montreal in the famous in 94, 94 season. Yeah. And yeah. Mike's wearing his Expos hat today. Yes, I am. So I thought Love this the would Expos. Be, I thought this would be accurate, and I hope we see them again someday. Not the half. Not the, not not the, the Montreal-Tampa Bay Expos. Yeah, that'd be so. stupid. But uh, but then that, that amazing 2001 team with the Mariners, too. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Randy Johnson. Um, well, yeah. and then Randy Johnson did win a World Series later with the Arizona Diamondbacks with Curt Schilling. He went to Arizona. Sure, sure. Yeah, so he at least did get that. Right. But I mean, at the time, they were saying goodbye to a five-time All-Star, four-time Strego champion, and the 1995 Cy Young winner. I never would have gotten this, but you know baseball better than I do. So who did Seattle receive? Which three players in exchange for Randy Johnson? And I've never even heard of these guys, so I don't know if you'd know them. Mark Langston was one. No. No? Okay. Um, Then I don't know. Freddie Garcia, Carlos Guillen, and John Halama. Oh my God! Yeah, that's, Larry Moe and Curly. That's who they. That's who they got for that. Just some other uh, ones, of course. Kevin Garnett for a million things to Boston from Minnesota. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or our buddy Ron Francis going to Pittsburgh. Um, and and uh, I'm still I'm still kind of surprised that the uh, Kansas City Chiefs traded Tony Gonzalez to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Remember when that happened? Mm-hmm. He he was good there for a couple of years. Yep. 
Um, but it, but but Kansas City was going to be going through a minor rebuild, and he wanted to win a championship. Yeah, and they thought that the best way for him to do that was to do it in Atlanta at that time. Um, I I think of iconic trades, and again, folks, if you, I would love for a Greg, uh, a Ryan, or anybody out there in unscripted land. If there's a trade out there that you think was really outrageous or one team really screwed over the other, let us know. Send us a note. Chris and I will certainly talk about it on air, but I've got a couple here that just came to the top of my head. Um, Chris briefly mentioned it about Dougie Gilmore getting traded. Uh, This was 1992, I believe. This was a year before the... uh, Maple Leafs made a deep run in the playoffs in 93. They made it to the Western Conference Finals, but lost to Wayne Gretzky and the LA Kings. Um, That was the year, 1993. That was the last year a Canadian team has won Lord Stanley's Cup. But in 1992, Dougie Gilmore got caught with the babysitter. And the babysitter happened to be related to the owner. And the owner told the then general manager at the time, Doug Riseborough, Get this piece of shit out of town right now. I don't care what you get for him. What Dougie Gilmore was traded to to Toronto still is embarrassing to this day. But I don't blame Doug Riseborough because Doug Riseborough was just going on the orders of his boss, Harley Hotchkiss. Harley Hotchkiss told him to get this this little molester out of his out of off his roster, out of the city, and and just get him out of town. He sends him to Toronto for a package that was headlined. And I mean, this isn't headline, folks. This is just, you know, Gary Lehman. Who the hell or who the what is a Gary Lehman? Um, I really believe, because at this time, and you know, I'm not a Flames fan. Can't stand them. But at this time, in 92, they still had Neuendijk. They still had McGinnis. They still had Dougie Gilmore. I think they still had Mike Vernon between the pipes. I think Calgary could have been a viable team for a couple more years if they could have kept them together. But then when Gilmore gets in trouble with the babysitter, that was kind of the beginning of the end. Because then all of a sudden you see McGinnis going to to St. Louis. You saw Ginla come in as part of the Joey Neuendijk trade. Neuendijk goes to Dallas. Dallas sends a young left winger from the Kamloops Blazers, otherwise known as Jerome Aginla, to Calgary. And that's how the Calgary Flames became the piece of crap that they are today. But that that's a trade that, you know, again, here's one that I remember vividly because it involves my two favorite teams in the NBA. 1975, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was playing for the Milwaukee Bucks. He was the first-round draft pick of the Bucks in 1969 out of UCLA. They won a coin flip uh, over the Phoenix Suns for the right to draft to take the number one pick in the 69 draft. In the 69 draft, the number one draft pick was a kid from UCLA via New York by the name of Lou Alcindor, who, of course, changed uh, religious religion, and then changed his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But Kareem had had enough of small-town Milwaukee by 1975, and he basically gave the Bucks an ultimatum, you trade me or I'm not going to play. Well, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at this time obviously was the most dominant player in the NBA. And Kareem and one other guy, and I don't know who the other guy is, it doesn't matter. I don't care. Kareem and one guy get sent to Los Angeles, the Lakers, for Dave Myers, Junior Bridgman, Brian Winters, Elmore Smith. All four of those guys became starters in Milwaukee. That was a deal that kind of 
And the reason I bring that up is that was a deal that kind of helped both teams. A lot of times trades are very one-sided, especially when you're trying to trade superstars. Because again, in the Gretzky scenario, how can you send anybody off of one guy's team to make it a fair deal when you're trying to acquire the great one, Wayne Gretzky? You can't. It's unfair to Martin Jelena, it's unfair to Jimmy Carson, and it's unfair to the three number ones they got because I don't care what they became. And Martin Jelena was a very serviceable National Hockey League player. Jimmy Carson, as Chris mentioned, had one year and obviously some, you know, but whatever. But there's no way you can make that a fair deal. In reality, at the time, the Bucks general manager was a guy by the name of Wayne Embry. Wayne Embry did very well in this deal. You're trading a guy who ultimately would end up winning six MVP awards. He's still the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. And they got four starters. That's pretty damn good. Um, what else you got on your list, sir? Sure. So I, I thought this was an interesting one from the 70s. And I know I told a story about this one uh, a while back on Unscripted. But there was a story that Don Cherry had in one of his books where he was in a hotel room with Phil Esposito up high on a higher floor and he, and the window was open and uh, Don said, uh, like, sorry, Phil, I just want you to know that we traded you. Oh, my. And so <laughs> Phil Esposito said, if you traded me to the New York Rangers, I'm going to jump out that window. And so then Don just moved over and blocked the window. <laughs> And then for some reason, Phil hated, I don't know if it was New York or just the Rangers franchise or what, but he hated them. And uh, he ended up going with someone named Carol Vadnais. And in return, Boston got uh, Joe Zanussi, who I don't know anything about, but they got Brad Park, who was a very good defenseman. And they got John Rattel, who was their finesse guy. And so back in those days when the game policed itself, there's no instigator penalties and men were men and blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, teams would have their one little finesse guy who wasn't tough or anything. You just didn't touch him, mm-hmm. you know, and obviously the Oilers had Gretzky. That's sure. a pretty obvious one. And, you know, anyone, doesn't matter who it was, even even Messier would kill you, but some Manko, McSorley, whatever, you touch Wayne Gretzky, you're dead. Right. Right. But all that, you didn't have to have a guy as good as Gretzky. Just everyone would have, generally would have a finesse player. To, you just don't touch the the little guys, right? right. That's just Johnny Goudreau. Yeah, exactly. So for Boston, that was John Rattel. He was just, uh, he was just a little, uh, you know, sophisticated, suave, sophisticated little guy. And uh, yeah, you just didn't touch him. And so I think that ended up being a, a, an okay trade overall there, but it's still crazy. I mean, Phil was 33 at the time. So I guess they, th- and back then, 33 is already getting old here, but now that we're seeing guys into their 40s, you know, it's, it's not as bad. But back then, 33, they just thought he was pretty much done. Even though in the previous seven seasons, Phil Esposito averaged over 130 points a season. Whoa. Which is not even possible realistically by today's standards. Maybe, barely, maybe if you're a McDavid or someone like that, but... Uh, I mean, 130 points. Yeah, the goalies were shitting everything, but that's still pretty amazing. He was, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was tough to trade Phil Esposito back then. I think that was a bit wild. Uh, also, this one's for my buddy Greg here, but uh, <laughs> the 
the uh, St. Louis Rams traded a second and a fifth round pick in exchange for a Super Bowl. I mean, Marshall Falk. Yeah. And uh, that was that was a pretty good trade, I'd say. So uh, Marshall Falk, I mean, should have been two Super Bowls minimum. They could have won three in a row there if they didn't have the worst defense of all time Mm -hmm. in the middle year in 2000, because that was probably their best offense of the three. Correct. Was the middle one when they didn't go to to there. Uh, How about Shaquille O'Neal going to the Miami Heat from the Lakers? Yeah, at that time, though, I think Shaq was probably on the downside of his career a little bit more. I think it was more, you know, obviously he was a bigger ticket item when he left Orlando via free agency for Los Angeles. But, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I've got one here that uh, I don't know the parameters as to who was traded for who, but, I mean, you can even trade icons. I mean, think about this, folks. Baseball fans of the, at one time, obviously they originated as the New York Giants. In 1958, they, along with the Los Angeles, to the Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, the Dodgers go to Los Angeles the New York Giants go to San Francisco, but an icon in San Francisco forever and ever. Uh, now, again, when Willie Mays first came up, he was a member of the New York Giants. He made the famous catch in the 1951 World Series from you know his, his, his back facing home plate off of the bat of Vic Wirtz in the 51 World Series, and or was it the 54 World Series? Doesn't matter. Cleveland was playing the New York Giants. Regardless, Willie Mays is synonymous with the Giants baseball organization. And yet in 72, the San Francisco, excuse me, the then San Francisco Giants trade Willie Mays to the New York Giants. So guys can, legends or not, legends can still get traded. I remember in the late 70s, Tom Seaver was quite arguably the best pitcher in Major League Baseball, pitching for the New York Mets. And the Mets and Tom Seaver could not come on, could not come to resolution on a contract. And so the hard ass owners of the New York Mets, who at the time I believe was the Doubleday family, I'm not sure, but I want to say was the Nelson Doubleday family, they said, Screw you, Tom Seaver, the greatest pitcher in New York Mets history, still to this day, they trade him to Cincinnati. So um, I also think we had a couple of very, very momentous changing and really league changing trades that just happened in the NBA, not a, much more than a month ago. Think about it this way. Think about the, the overview of the Western conference of the NBA for this next upcoming 19 or 2019, 2020 season. When you think about what the two LA teams did in regard to trading things this offseason. Look at it. They traded four players, all four of them number one draft picks at one time. Three players, excuse me, three players. They traded uh, Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, both number twos, and Josh Hart. They go to New Orleans, and three number one draft picks for Anthony Davis. Look what the Los Angeles Clippers did to acquire Paul George as part of the package to get Kawhi Leonard. They sent seven or five number ones and two players, excuse me, five number ones and two players. So potentially seven bodies for Paul George. Those are alter those are those are league altering potential trades just in the last couple of weeks. That's what trades can do 
And uh, it's funny. I know this is about the 3rd July that Chris and I have been together. And every, well, July into August, but early August, every year we talk about this because it's still topical. It's still topical to me, going back to the Gretzky thing, it's still topical to me because I don't consider it a trade. I consider that Peter Pocklington, Peter Pocklington selling his asset to the highest bidder. And the highest bidder was Bruce McNall in Los Angeles. That's what I think yeah, it was. It was an absolute sale all the way. It was a joke. It should have been vetoed then. It would absolutely be vetoed now, I believe. Oh, I believe so too. Yes. But, okay, so the three number one picks. That sounds great in a trade. You get three number ones. That yeah. sounds good. Okay, yeah. especially back then. I think that was fairly unheard of. Uh, so if you add up the three guys who got drafted with those first round picks, how many total games did they play for the Edmonton Oilers? Take a guess. Less than 100. Four. Oh, my. Oh, that's less than 100. The first guy, Corey Foster in 89, uh, played no games. Eventually, he got traded um, to the Devils. Then in 91, they had Martin Ruchinski, who I mentioned earlier in the one trade. Uh, he played. He had an okay career, but he only played two games for Edmonton before being traded. And then some guy named Nick Stadjahar in 93 played two games and then was wow. never heard from again in the league. So that's the problem with that's the, been the problem with the Oilers franchise ever wow. since the glory days was that we couldn't draft worse shit like the worst drafting team the worst developing team like you just you can't overcome that it's not just that nobody wants to play in Edmonton or we haven't had any stars or whatever that's else bullshit. or it's small market or right. not enough money or whatever it's been that we have had the worst scouting the worst drafting and the worst development of any team in the league bar none. And now it's finally getting better. It's starting to look good. I like what Keith Gretzky is doing. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden now we have this apparent embarrassment of riches when it comes to minor league, up-and-coming young defensemen, prospects who are, have been high draft picks in recent years, ready to kind of have their shot at the big show in a month or two. And all of a sudden we got tons of them. So it's it's good. It seems to maybe be turning around. I'm excited to see this Philip Broberg who we took in the first round this year. You know, I mean, it's Ken Holland. He's going to look for the next Nicholas Lidstrom. That's what he's going to do. And that's what this kid could be as much or as close as anyone could be to Lidstrom. But anyway, that's just that's what we're going to try to do here. And uh, I, I'm hoping for the best. But when you trade Wayne Gretzky and you get three number ones, you better not miss. And yeah. if you do, it goes down as the most embarrassing debacle in the history of sports. Um, before we get out of here on this, uh, 376th, 375th, excuse me, 375th episode of Unscripted, I wanted to ask Chris a question here and I'm going to switch gears on him real quick. Uh, CFL last night, um, interesting game in Montreal. Um, 17 to 10 was the final score ended up in a game between the Saskatchewan Rough Riders and the Montreal Alouettes. Saskatchewan ends up on top 17 to 10. But the game was called due to weather in the middle of the third quarter due to a new rule that was just uh, that was just negotiated and the CFL owners and the CFL Players Association just hammered out a new collective bargaining before this season started. So this is a new rule and last night was the first time that this rule was enacted. And I want Chris's feelings on it because I have some pretty strong feelings about it, but I want to hear Chris's first. And the, the question I want to pose to Chris, 
The CFL has implemented a new rule involving weather, and last night in Montreal it rained throughout the game, but then in the third quarter the rain came down in sheets, and then all of a sudden here comes the weather in regard to lightning and thunder, and that's what led to the referees putting the teams, calling, uh, stopping the game, putting the teams back in their respective locker rooms because of the threat, as obviously with the lightning. New CFL rule that games that are played that have made it at least through halfway through the game. So they've made it, and they they made obviously they made that they made that point because it was the middle of the third quarter when the game was ultimately called. So the game was more than half had been played more than than half. Okay, so more than thirty minutes of the game had actually been competed. Um, but then once the game was stopped, that started the clock on a rule that says. For one hour upon the stopping of a game, if the inclement weather continues, now we're not just talking about a rain shower. We're talking about with the the thunder and the lightning as a potential hazard, and I get that. That's not where my problem is. But after one hour, if the fireworks in the skies do not dissipate, the referees then have the authority to call the game. And who is ever winning at that time is awarded the victory. That's what happened last night. Your thoughts, sir? I don't get the point of this rule. I mean, we've been dealing with lightning and sports for a very long time. I guess you could say, I don't know, the entire time there's ever been sports, because there's been lightning. So uh, I just I thought this was way too early. I don't get the point of the rule. I don't like giving it, leaving it up to a bunch of officials who have no vested interests in sitting around and sticking around and making sure the game ends. Why would they care? doesn't make any sense there. Uh, halfway through the game is not enough. You'd have to minimum before, like as a starting point for negotiations, you'd have to say finish the third quarter, but even that I wouldn't be happy with. I'd want it to be at least halfway through the fourth quarter, if not finish the entire game, unless it's maybe have something in there where if it's, you know, there's, there's lightning and there's, 10 minutes left in the game and one team's up by at least 30 then whatever or something like that that's fine if it's a total blowout you don't need to finish it or anything but uh, I just don't like this I, I'd say go in and as long as it takes honestly like let's say there's a huge rain delay like two or three hours and then you come out and you finish it and it's this epic thing it gets a lot of publicity people might be interested in it get people talking about the league and I think that's a good thing. And uh, even if you're a fan there and it's kind of a pain in the ass, you can say like, hey, I was at the game that went on for seven hours and I toughed it out and I watched the whole thing. And it's a neat story for sports. I just don't see any benefit to having a time limit on when disinterested referees, and I mean disinterested, not an uninterested, but disinterested as in they don't have a dog in the fight. I don't think that you should leave someone like that uh, you know, any decision like that up to those guys when it's the fans who are going to suffer and feel ripped off, even if their team gets the win. It's at the very least severely anticlimactic, and I just don't get it at all. I am disappointed for a lot of the things that Chris just mentioned, but the biggest thing to me is that you need to wait longer. Did the, did the referees have a date? Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. The people that are getting screwed here are the fans that paid their money, to watch this at Mc, at McGill Stadium in Montreal, and the Montreal Alouettes got screwed. I totally agree with Chris. If the game is thirty-five to three, with three minutes to go in the third quarter, 
Game's over. I have no issue. But a seven-point game in the CFL, that can be overcome in seconds. In seconds, folks. The CFL game moves much faster than the NFL game. And I am appalled that we had to sit there and the uh, Montreal Alouettes. I'm not an Alouettes fan. I don't care. I hate Quebec. I don't care. But their fans got screwed here. The team got screwed here. Kahari Jones, the coach, got screwed here. They don't have an owner. The CFL owns the Montreal Alouettes, so the CFL should know better than this. But to just sit there and an arbitrary number, wait for an hour, that's ridiculous. Here's the other thing that I'm having a problem with. If it's Montreal and Toronto or Montreal or Hamilton, teams that are based in the East, that's one thing. They'll see each other again. But this this was an East-West crossover game. This is the only time this year that the Saskatchewan Rough Riders will be in Montreal. And vice versa, Montreal has already made their one and only trip this season to Saskatchewan to play the Rough Riders. These two teams, unless they're in the Grey Cup game or in the silly crossover game in the CFL's silly playoff system, this is the last time that these two teams will see each other this year. I think there should have been more of a waiting out period especially in a seven-point game. Again, if it's 35-3 to three in this scenario, no problem. Half the people have gone home anyway. They don't give a shit. But in a seven-point game, I think you wait more than an hour. I think it's preposterous, and it's sad because these two sides, meaning the CFL and its Players Association, just came to this resolution weeks ago. And now they probably have at least four years of this stupid rule. And with the weather in Canada, this is going to be a, a, is going to be an issue again somewhere down the line. And I hope when it does happen again in one of the outdoor stadiums in this league, like in a Calgary, like in a in a Montreal, like in a in a uh, Hamilton, now in Toronto at the BMO Place in in Toronto, I hope that the difference score wise between the two teams is a hell of a lot more than just seven points. I think that's ridiculous. I think the home team got screwed here, and I think that the home fans got screwed here. Yeah, there's no question about that. I mean, the CFL, what's actually disappointing here is the CFL, if nothing else, I would think that it would be a fan-friendly league. Thank you. Right? I mean, they're not the NFL. They don't have the luxury of having a jackass like Roger Goodell run them into the ground and still just kind of coast to success through raw inertia. Like, it's just... You, you don't have that luxury as the CFL. It's hard to compete for airtime, not just against the other sports, but like I brought up a few weeks ago, just against all the content these days uh, out there, just every kind of Netflix and whatever else. There's just, it's so tough to compete for the entertainment, not just the entertainment dollar, but the entertainment eyes. And uh, if nothing else, you would think the one thing the CFL would do right is keep their fans in mind. And they failed on that here. So what good are you? Great point, sir, and we've got to run on this 375th episode of Unscripted with Mike and Chris. We thank you very much, as always, for joining us and hope that you continue to do so. And just as a reminder, the new, um, I don't know, we got to make this the new saying or the new something at uh, Unscripted with Mike and Chris. Remember, folks, don't wait till your deathbed to tell people how you feel. Tell them to fuck off right now. Get it off your chest. Make you feel good. <laughs> I'm going to love this till the day I die. Um, I keep saying it to the right people. It might only be, might only be a week from Tuesday, but I'm going down fighting. I'm excited to say it uh, in your eulogy and see what the, yeah. reaction, what the reaction is. <laughs> that'll, be, that'll be fun. 
<laughs> well, you'll be speaking at my eulogy because I know you'll be the only one there that can put a full sentence together. Um, having said all this, we got to run. Having said all that, for the executive producer of Unscripted, Mr. Chris Fluke, I'm Mike Jansen. Until next time.